This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. Dharma talk is uh, uh, going to be on two related uh, topics, which I might not get the chance to finish the talk today. But um, the first topic is uh, secular Buddhism, and the second topic is a kind of reinterpretation of um, the understanding of the what are commonly referred to in the traditional Buddhism as the Four Noble Truths. <coughs> so, um, um, when, when I was encouraged to teach, uh, given authority to teach by my teacher, Barry, a few years ago, uh, and since that time, I have often um, wondered how to position myself uh, within Buddhism and um, and this has been a sort of ongoing dialogue I've been having um, not only how I position myself but how I position my relationship to the ordinary mind Zen school and how the ordinary mind Zen school fits into the larger realm of Dharma teaching and Buddhism in general and how we actually uh, and how that also um, transplants itself into the uh, mid-north coast of New South Wales and this particular time and place um, and um, so what, what I've uh, what I, my position at the moment I want to share with you and so um, and um, it's a um, so I've decided to come out as or define myself as a secular Buddhist and uh, so I want to talk a little bit about what that means and um, and uh, and also uh, as a, as a corollary of that, a sort of a slightly, uh, well, a, a quite significant uh, understanding of the uh, of the four noble truths, um, and so this has been influenced, of course, by the the founding teacher of the Zen school I belong to, Joko Beck, but also my teacher Barry Majid, 
And the other person that's had a significant influence on me at this point is also Stephen Batchelor, mm -hmm. Stephen Batchelor. Um, so perhaps um, um, more than any other person, uh, Stephen Batchelor is probably the most well-known for promoting this notion of secular Buddhism. This is a, um, a book that came out in 2017, um, which is a collection of his writings over the past few years. Uh, um, he initially came onto the scene with a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, which was published in 1997. And uh, um, so this one's called Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. And a bachelor's background is that he, he, he became a monk when he was very, very young. When he was about 18 or 19, he went to Dharamsala and uh, joined the, the, the same order that the Dalai Lama belongs to. He was a Tibetan monk for a while. And, uh, and then he uh, travelled to Korea and, and became a uh, Korean Zen monk for a while until he then uh, disrobed and met his wife-to-be Martin when he was over in Korea and they now live in the south of France together and uh, he teaches regularly in Europe. He has been to Australia a few times and I've never actually met him and, and I'm not quite sure if he has any plans to return to Australia or not. The other significant person of course in, uh, who's influenced me is my teacher Barry Majid. And Barry was quite instrumental in the foundation of what's called the, uh, um, the Lay Zen Teachers Association in the United States. It's an it's a international association that may, mainly uh, teachers who, belong, who live in the United States belong to it. And, um, and I guess that's also a, uh, on, on, in terms of the history of all this, I mean, uh, when Joko left, um, uh, formed her own school, um, uh, so her teacher, Mazumi Roshi, was founded what's called the, uh, the Plum, something Plum Sangha in the United States, uh, and she formed her own Zen school, and, and in a way she didn't describe herself as a secular Buddhist, I don't think, she ever sort of described herself like that, but she certainly dropped a lot of the religious um, uh, um, aspects of, um, of, uh, of, of the Buddhism that she initially trained in. And, uh, and Barry himself is also like uh, Stefan Batchelor. He, uh, he uh, has a very kind of uh, um, naturalistic understanding of Buddhism, i.e. Most alike secular Buddhism um, or naturalized Buddhism does not uh, identify with beliefs like reincarnation or karma, as, it, as in the sense in which one is reborn depending upon how one lives one's life. Um, so a secular Buddhism very much um, adopts a kind of uh, uh, an ongoing dialogue with science, I guess, as well. It respects the scientific worldview. Um, and then another way in which Bachelor has also uh, described secular Buddhism is uh, he describes Buddhism as a 
what you might call as a praxis-based uh, humanitarian philosophy, in my words, but uh, not a as distinct from being a belief-based religion. And um, so, um, what is uh, so? Uh, Bachelor uses the term secular in three different ways. So there's a sort of common usage of secular as distinct from religious. So um, you might go along to a conference and there might be a number of religious people there and they'll say, this is the Buddhist view or Islamic view or a Christian view and what's the secular view on this and so on. So, uh, so secular is distinct from religious is the kind of way in which secular is normally used. So I guess if we were having a secularized Buddhism, we would start to um, um, you know, styles of dress, I guess, and rituals would become more secularized, so there would be less sort of dressing up as a religious person. Um, we'd, uh, we would secularize with rituals and reduce rituals to a certain extent. Um, the other meaning of uh, secular that he, Bachelor talks about, he, he talks about the Latin word seculum, seculum, which apparently means this age or these times or this world. So he, he also uses secular Buddhism as in the Buddhism that's evolving in the West here and now in this particular culture at this particular historical point as distinct from the, uh, the world of ancient India. And when the Buddha lived, which was around about 500 BC, um, apparently he calculated the number of lifetimes, about, about 30 lifetimes ago or something like that. Not too, like when you think about it in terms of human lives, the world that the historical Buddha was living in is not that far removed from the world that we live in. Um, but this particular world that we live in, of course, has a more, you know, since 18th, 19th century, even the 17th century, with age of enlightenment and so forth, we've grown up in a secular culture uh, with a respect for science uh, rather than a religious view of the world. And, um, and this other final uh, meaning of the word secular is um, the transfer of authority over certain domains from religion to the state. So yeah, he sort of the question is, what would a non-religious, this worldly, secularized Buddhism look like, and uh, and to what extent is this process already underway? So you'd all be aware of the uh, growth in popularity of uh, what's referred to these days as secular mindfulness. And secular mindfulness has penetrated many uh, domains, both clinical, um, educational, health, business, and so on. And uh, you, you only have to go into the news agency in Belgium these days and uh, you pick up all these mindfulness magazines that are aimed both at teenagers and young people. Uh, it's been quite phenomenal. And uh, um, and even though the, uh, the teaching of mindfulness in uh, public education and uh, 
and other areas, uh, health sector and so on, uh, the word Buddhism is removed, but it doesn't. It's, uh, it's fairly clear to most people that uh, mindfulness uh, has its origins in Buddhism. And, uh, but that's, I guess, one example of the way in which uh, the Buddhism has already taken a secularized form in the West. And one can uh, develop a critique of some aspects of that and, 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 and uh, the degree to which we don't want to use the ethical dimension. We don't want to lose necessarily the, the ethical dimension of Buddhism in, in that secularization. Um, that's where I tend to also identify secularism with uh, humanitarianism. humanitarianism. So I looked at the definition of humanitarianism. A, a humanitarian person is a person who is involved in or connected with improving people's lives and reducing suffering. You know, so one could argue that you know, Buddhism is a, a secular Buddhism is a kind of humanitarian philosophy with a, uh, a commitment to um, changing the world. And, um, creating a different kind of culture, a culture which is concerned with human flourishing, human well-being, and the reduction of suffering. Mm. So, actually goes on to talk about, well, what was the... Um, see, Buddhism itself only came into being in the 19th, early 20th century in the sense that it was Western, Westerners who travelled in Asia who actually called this phenomenon Buddhism. There was no Buddhism before the 19th century, 20th century. Buddhism was a Western term. Um, so if you like, there was just different Buddhisms uh, that had evolved in uh, India, in Tibet, in, in uh, China, Sri Lanka, Burma, Korea, Vietnam, etc. But they didn't have a sense of this one sense of one Buddhism. There's just a different kind of religion. So they, developed from that early times when, he, as you know, the, the historical Buddha grew up in a Hindu culture and in many ways his teaching was distinguished or defined against that background of Hinduism. Um, so Bachelor asks the question, well, what was the underlying unity found in traditional Buddhism? And uh, he, he talked about the, the sociological worldview of ancient India. Um, sociological is a kind of religious term about the, the various ways in which various religions talk about salvation or uh, socio sociology. And um, so the, the one thing that seemed to unite this kind of historical or traditional Buddhism was this particular worldview that came from ancient India. And he defined that the, uh, in this particular worldview, the ultimate goal of practice uh, was defined as the attainment of Nirvana, which was defined as the complete cessation of craving, Tanha, that drives the cycle of birth and death. This same worldview was found in Hinduism. Um, so Patchula uses, this, uses this, 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 this metaphor of an operating system. So he had these different sort of programs, but they had this one underlying operating, operating system where that nirvana or the goal of practice is the release 
or emancipation from the wheel of birth and death, the liter literal wheel of birth and death. Uh, and um, so his question is, well, how, how, how do we go around uh, developing uh, a, a different operating system which is suitable for today's culture? And um, so Bachelor takes the viewpoint that he, we need to sort of have some kind of foundation and he turns towards the canonical text, the very early, the earliest party text to try and um, um, connect with an historical uh, Buddha. He, he believes it's possible to distinguish between a, a mythological story and an historical narrative in Buddhism. And he goes to, he turns to the early party text. Um, as my teacher Barry, um, he's, uh, he doesn't think that's necessary, but I'm not going to go into that today because I'll just focus on what Bachelor does. So, um, so how to found a secular Buddhism? Um, and um, so he comes down to the, uh, the reading of the first discourse, the Buddha's first discourse, where he talks about the, uh, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is, one could argue, the core, the core teaching, if you like, of Buddhism. And um, this traditional um, teaching, which Bachelor calls Buddhism 101, goes like this. So you would find it normally in, in, if, you, if, you, if you went to a text, the traditional rendering of the Four Noble Truths is existence is suffering, the origin of suffering is craving, the cessation of suffering is nirvana, and the Noble Eightfold Path is the way that leads to the cessation of suffering. So, suffering um, is seen as being caused by craving. Now, um, suffering the Buddha talks about, particularly in that particular discourse, is like birth is suffering, death is suffering, old age is suffering, uh, not having what, one is, what is dear to one is suffering, and so on. Like, it's a, like a very universal uh, viewpoint of suffering. And, um, you know, Bachelor argues that he was puzzled by how, how could craving or... Craving is often used to capture both the, the sense of both uh, clinging or grasping, um, as well as... Um, so, that's clinging and grasping is the, the attachment, or also aversion, the pushing away. So the, the word desire or tanha is this sense of the desire to to want something that we don't have or not want what we've got, right? Um, but how, how, could, how could that, as an origin or a cause, be the cause of birth and death? Well, I mean, the only real explanation for that is that, literally, it's that craving which leads to rebirth. So the, the, the doctrine of reincarnation or rebirth is central to traditional Buddhism and the understanding of the truths. So that suffering arises because we are reborn again. And uh, we can only stop this craving and realize nirvana by, and bring suffering to an end by getting off this wheel. And that was literally seen as blowing out uh, the, the sense of one would no longer be reborn again. That was, that's the traditional teaching in Theravada Buddhism. 
in the Mahayana Buddhism uh, change that, but not fundamentally. The, the, the Bodhisattva principle was that you would put on hold the extinction, your, your, your release from the wheel, until everybody was released from the wheel, but still the same principle. Um, so, um, Buddhism then, these, these four noble truths in traditional Buddhism, Bachelor argues, is, are presented as a belief system. Like any religion, this is what you believe in if you're a Buddhist. Um, now, he, start, he talks about a, I can't remember the name now, but it was a, a British philologist who was an expert in these Pali texts, discovered that the, the term noble truth was a later addition. He could prove this by his, his, his uh, textual analyses. So these kind of texts, these Pali texts, especially the ones with the first discourse, there's so many different versions, about 17 different versions, I think. So there's a definitely a sense in which, like, uh, a li- like, like within the Zen tradition, these, these textual documents were altered on very regular occasions. And we also, we do know that the oral teachings of the, of the historical Buddha were, not, were, were written down in, in Sri Lanka about 400 years after his death. So then you have different versions of those. And um, so according to this particular philologist, um, this noble truth, and so Bachelor runs with this, and he, he talks about how the, in the earliest Pali texts, there's the, the, the historical Buddha often refuses to engage in metaphysical speculation of any kind. These kind of questions such as, is the world eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite, are the body and mind the same or different? Does one exist after death? So in these earlier Pali texts, the Buddha just does not engage in that kind of dialogue. Um, there's a story about the arrow where he talks about, you know, if you have an arrow stuck in you're gonna are you gonna ask where the arrow originated from or who made the arrow or no, you just want to remove the arrow. So um, his teaching was very pragmatic. In other words, um, he wasn't necessarily so much interested in what is the truth, but he was more interested in what works. In other words, what relieves suffering. This is Bachelor's interpretation, which I quite like. So, um, the, 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 the historical Buddha dropped these kinds of metaphysical speculations, which are fundamental to Hinduism. So in the Avaita Vedanta, Vedanta traditions, it's all about what's the truth, and so on. And... Uh, and the realization of the truth is some kind of internal uh, correspondence to that reality or that truth. So, the historical Buddha, according to Bachelor, is more concerned with a therapeutic and pragmatic approach to life. And, um, and he talks about this privileging of truth is uh, one of the ways in which what he calls the uh, the liberative praxis of awakening into a religious belief system called Buddhism. Um, Now, so he then goes on to examine these, um, the four, and and taking out the notion of noble truths, they actually become the four, and the four you also find these in the Pali texts, and, and Thich Nhat Hanh also talks about this, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, there's 
three aspects to each of these four principles. And uh, so Bachelor starts to look at these uh, different, uh, these what he calls the uh, the four tasks. So the what became known as the four truths become the four tasks. In other words, they're not truths as something we need to practice. But the, the four he arrives at from the Pali text, when you, when you, when you boil it down, are um, suffering, arising, ceasing, and power. Um, the, um, so, um, suffering is, uh, is the Pali word is dukkha, as we'd, you know, you'd all be familiar with, often translated as suffering, but suffering doesn't quite capture the, you know, the like. Then uh, the uh, the word arising is samudaya, the word ceasing is nairada, and the word path is magga. And these are the key concepts, suffering, arising, ceasing, path. And um, he, he argues that um, this is common. So these four things, suffering, arising, ceasing, path, are what are common to both the traditional Buddhism and the kind of reformed Buddhism that he's, he's wanting to develop, uh, the secular Buddhism. And the, 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 the significant thing is when you translate samudaya as arising rather than origin or cause, you get a different feel for what these four are teaching us. So rather than um, um, the cause of dukkha being craving, it actually flips it around. And so you start to go in the other direction. So actually, um, the dukkha um, causes the craving. So it's the inability or the difficulty of Homo sapiens or human beings to be with the human condition that causes the craving. So the human condition uh, is both tragic and joyful, and it has a whole. Uh, so, in a sense, uh, dukkha is referring to this human condition, the all the full spectrum of the human condition, which includes pleasure and, and uh, but everything, uh, uh, but it also includes death and the loss of loved ones and uh, and pain and so on, and the difficulty of being with that human condition is what causes the the attachment and the aversion, the difficulty of being with it. So he flips it around. And my teacher Barry's also come to that position as well. He sees it very much the same way. Um, and uh, Bachelor also starts to translate the word craving differently. So he translates craving as reactivity. So as the sense in which this is that that's that we start to talk about that self-centered reactivity, the, the reactive patterns that we get caught in as a result of the difficulty of being with this human condition. And uh, so um, we start to get um, a different feel now coming out in terms of the practice principles of the four truths as in being the four tasks. And so he, tarts, he starts, he breaks it down as a very simple Four. So, number one, um, embrace. Embrace this life. Embrace this dukkha. Embrace all aspects of it. 
Um, in other words, what um, in the ordinary mind Zen we might talk about surrendering to what is. Or, and um, the second one um, is uh, let go. So when the, when we see the the so fully know this uh, this suffering or fully know this life or fully know this condition, whatever this moment is, and then if if a if a, if a reaction comes up to that, let it go. And in the letting go, we stop and we fall into the what the stopping is the nirvana in this moment when we've let go of the reaction and we've let go of the resistance to what is. And the, the, the path uh, which we cultivate just simply describes as act. So he reduces it to embrace, let go, stop and act. And so the, the, the path is the, the cultivation so it's like the um, what we awake to in Bachelor's version of Buddhism, the awakening is the awakening to the, the four. And we awaken to the way in which we try to avoid or escape from what is. And, uh, and that's a never-ending process. And, uh, and so as some of you would be familiar with in terms of the, um, the Eightfold Path, um, there's eight aspects to that. The eight practices are the, the complete view in terms of the insight, the complete resolve, complete speech, conduct, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, samadhi. So the sense in which um, our whole life becomes that kind of practice. And uh, enlightenment or awakening is, not, is no longer understood as some sort of private experience which happens, but it's waking up to this practice. Um, which is done with others as well. So it's um, the whole uh, notion becomes the creation of a culture of awakening from this perspective. Um, and so that, that creation of that culture of awakening uh, starts with the development of the, the Sangha or intentional friends coming together and how that is then taken into the world uh, in order to bring about this humanitarian reduction of the growth of well-being and the reduction of suffering. Um, so that's a very short version of, um, of, um, of um, bachelor's um, secular Buddhism.